On the show today, Adam Gazeli, a neuroscientist, neurologist, inventor, author, photographer, entrepreneur, and investor. And with us is also my co-host, Rainier Indal, founder and managing partner of Summa Equity. So Adam, our dear friend, a warm welcome. So grateful to have you. you here. Wonderful to be here. Thanks. Uh, and today we'll talk about an issue that affects us all, the cognition crisis. But first, let's enter the world of cognitive neuroscience. Imagine playing a video game where data about you in the moment is being collected with sensor technology, performance metrics, emotional responses, body movements, brain activity. And this is all used in real time to guide the environment you're experiencing, personalizing both challenges and the rewards to improve your cognition. It would be like sparring with the ultimate personal cognition trainer. So experiences are a powerful way of changing our brain. And one of your companies, Adam, is creating therapeutic video games that serve as uh, this cognitive enhancement tool. And you've created the first ever digital medicine, an FDA clear digital treatment for children and also the first digital treatment for ADHD, which is a huge milestone and a huge help for so many. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thanks. It was a long journey. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it's truly uh, mind-blowing and inspiring, uh, uh, Adam. So. Thanks, Rainer. <laughs> I, I probably need to use that video game, I guess. <laughs> we could all use it. We could all use it. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us more about what this digital medicine is for and who it is for. Yeah. So the, um, the basic foundation of this idea was that when it comes to cognition, and I'm defining that broadly here to include our attention, our memory, perception, how we regulate our emotions, how we remember our imagination, creativity, reasoning, decision-making, even empathy and compassion. We're really tragically lacking on improving these abilities. And we've relied almost solely on what we think of as medicine as, as a drug, that there was somehow a pill that you could take and improve how your brain functions. And while there are some drugs that have helped somewhat, we're still left with this massive need. And so the idea behind this digital medicine, or even broadly how I think of it as experiential medicine, is that our brain, just like our bodies, are responsive to experiences. They, when challenged, their response is to optimize their interactions to meet that challenge. And you know we're very familiar with this. If you go to the gym and you use weights or you run, your body gradually over time adapts to that challenge, and then you can push yourself further. It's like the whole basis of physical fitness. But there's also cognitive fitness, and our brains also have this property called neuroplasticity that if challenged, it will uh, improve its function. And so I was inspired by modern day technologies that I thought could deliver experiences in a very targeted way that was accessible to more people to improve brain function. So as you described, the technologies that we use are adaptive, meaning that they're closed loop, such that they're constantly collecting data and using that data to challenge people in an appropriate and personalized manner so that it's not so easy, that you're bored, not so hard that you're frustrated and give up. So it finds your sweet spot. It's like, as you said, it's like sparring with the ultimate trainer. And when it comes to delivering a digital experience that people will engage in deeply for a long period of time, my idea was that a video game is a perfect format for that. So there's nothing magic about the video game. It's just that it is a fun, engaging, 
way of delivering an experience that you know we know millions of people around the world engage in daily. And so the idea 15 years ago that I had was let's build a closed loop experience. So one that's adaptive, as we described, let's deliver it as a video game and target the networks in the brain that support attention. That was our first game, NeuroRacer. And so we built that game. And you know, this is a, a long 15-year story that I'm just quickly summarizing. And we're able to show first in older adults in a paper we published in Nature in 2013 that these seniors, 60 to 80-year-olds, healthy, no dementia, don't just get better at the game which they do, but they get better at other cognitive abilities outside of the game. That's really what you want to see. We call that transfer of benefits. And so their attention and their memory actually for faces improved by playing this game. And that was the nugget, the golden nugget that we're always looking for with this type of technology, the transfer outside of the game improvement itself. And that led to the long path that eventually took us to a game that has now been approved by the FDA to increase attention abilities in children that are suffering from attention deficit disorder, ADHD. So Adam, do you think that the uh, attention deficit disorder has been created by our digital experiences? I mean, have social media and everything we're engaging digital, has that created the problem that you're now trying to fix digitally? It's a great question. I'm glad that we have a, a good amount of time to talk because when I have to do like a five-minute interview, there's like this conflict between the fact that I studied distraction. I wrote a book called The Distracted Mind. I talk about the impact of technology on our cognition, but I also have a video game company that's there to improve attention. So it does need a little bit unpacking. So I'm glad that you dove right into it. I would say that if there was no modern day technologies, people would still have attention deficits. And you know, there's a spectrum of that. Like maybe we all have a little bit of an attention deficit with or without technology, but there are some people and children and adults that are deeply impaired by it and and it compromises their daily function. That would exist regardless of, of technology. I do believe that just like there's a full spectrum of all types of performance engagement, whether it's physical or memory, other aspects of how we interact with the world. I would also say that technology has likely aggravated this problem, maybe especially so in children, although probably in seniors as well, and and all of us to some degree. There's a lot more to be distracted by now than there was before. You had a, you know, basically a computer in your pocket with the ability to tap on you when your best friend wanted to talk to you. I mean, it's fairly distracting. So I think that the consensus is that digital technologies in its full breadth, right? I mean, I would include even video games in there, but social media, even email alone, I find fairly distracting and impairing sometimes of things that I want to do. Having multiple screens, you know, the vast multi-processing that we're sort of expecting of ourselves has challenged our brains fundamentally. And as I said, I wrote a whole book on this called The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World. My brains just did not really evolve to deal with the environment that we're now exposing it to through our technologies. So it's true. I do think that technologies have aggravated the problem, but I also think technologies could be a solution to it, right? It's not like anything is really good or bad. Like are drugs good or bad? Like some drugs are medicine. Other drugs create addiction and can kill people. Same thing with food. All food is not created equal. Even physical exercise, some people engage in marathons and destroy their knees. So, you know, everything has to be balanced and there's good and bad on both sides. And technology has always been that way, right? From fire 
on through writing to our modern technologies using computers. It is really about how we use it, the decisions that we make. So if abused, technology can offer all sorts of challenges to our lives. But I think if applied appropriately, it can be a solution for a lot of those things. So that's the story. That's how we've me in my career over the last 15 years have, have spent a lot of time in my laboratory at UCSF with functional brain imaging showing that our brains are very susceptible to interference. It degrades our performance. It degrades our memory. It could degrade how we interact with one another. But applied appropriately, these technologies can also act to improve our cognition. So it depends how you use it. And this, the status of our cognition on a global scale is in, in trouble and getting worse, and especially for our children. So what is the cognition crisis and, and how does it affect all of us? And, and also I'm thinking about the um, fundamental flaws behind this crisis. Yeah. So that is a term that I used several years ago, actually before the COVID pandemic. I think it's only more relevant now. And the reason I, I used that term was because I wanted to broaden the discussion beyond what we often refer to as the mental health crisis. I do think there is a mental health crisis. I think that if you look across the world, you see that there's an increase in anxiety, depression, suicide, dementia in our seniors. You see the problem is increasing with our children. This was before COVID. COVID has aggravated this as well. So I'm a neurologist. From a clinical perspective, we would call that a mental health crisis. The number of people that are diagnosed with these debilitating conditions that need medical treatment is large and increasing. That, I would say, is a mental health crisis. But when I use the term cognition crisis, I was trying to broaden the conversation beyond the clinical to something that I think is an impairment and a challenge for our entire species, that we have not really leveled up our minds. And we have not prioritized both the assessment of how we are thinking. You remember, I define cognition very broadly, including things like emotional regulation and perception and memory. And we have not also try to develop tools to improve it and increase it at a high level. And I'd say that we're paying a great price for not having done that. So when I refer to the cognition crisis, it includes the mental health crisis, but bigger than that, something that affects all of us. And I'd say, you know, all you have to do is read the daily news to recognize that we are challenged when it comes to long-term thinking, critical, like analytical decision-making, empathic concern for others. And as long as we have these problems and, and have not advanced our minds in this way, we will never effectively address other crises like climate change, for example. So I would say that climate change as a crisis will not be corrected by gathering information about climate change. Like, We have a lot of information about climate change. There is no doubt that human activities are affecting the climate. I mean, there's a 99% consensus among experts in that field. I think we're pretty safe that's going on. But you can still see how hard it is to invoke change. That, I would say, is because of the cognition crisis that underlies that, that you really need to have long-term thinking, very high-level decision-making, and truly empathic concern because the effects are probably not going to be fully manifested in our lifetimes but our children's. And so that's the type of impact that a cognition crisis has on our future. And that's why I use that term, the cognition crisis, beyond the mental health crisis to say, this is something that is not just a clinical medical problem. It's a lack of focus on improving the state of the human mind. 
you're not a scientist who is simply building on whatever came before in this kind of iterative, incremental way, but you dare to be a bit more fearless and take a little higher risk to make some groundbreaking discoveries and develop tools that really help people. And I'm just curious, what's behind this drive of yours? You know, what is your real goal? I would say a lot of it is driven out of frustration, to tell you the truth. Uh, as a neurologist, as a clinician, I don't see patients now, but when I did, they were patients that had Alzheimer's disease, senior, you know, older adults that were impaired in memory and attention and other aspects of cognition, not only due to dementia and Alzheimer's. We just don't have great treatments for those conditions. So very often we're left with diagnosing and just managing and watching. And outside of my own clinical domain, you can see the same challenges across all of neurology and psychiatry when it comes to depression and anxiety and autism and schizophrenia and multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's disease and on and on and on. We don't have the type of treatments that we should, I believe, at this stage in sort of our species development of all the technologies and medicines that we have. And you see these amazing breakthroughs in cardiology and oncology and infectious disease. I mean, despite the fact that we have a global pandemic, we have multiple vaccines now in an unbelievably brief period of time. So those same innovations and breakthroughs that we've seen in those other fields, I do not feel are occurring for the fields that are there to help treat our minds, neurology, psychiatry, and all the related other specialties. And so I would say that the work that I've done has been in response to frustration and that we just don't have the tools as professionals that we need to help the people in need. And that need is increasing. And, you know, I'd say other than that, I've always had this dream that I would help do something important someday. And with I would say it was a coalescence of things like the, the right time, the right place, being in San Francisco, a hub of technology, and this need that was not addressed. And then the last part would be how exciting I think it is to show that technology that is often criticized, often criticized fairly as an impairment-inducing tool, can be used as a way of enhancing what makes us human. And so that is really the driving force behind that. The mental health and the mental health crisis is huge. And I'm just surprised why it's not getting more attention. So while we're able to solve some of the pandemic issues, we're not addressing this in a proper way. Why is that? I think it's just, it's a lot of reasons. You know, it's interesting that you said that when the pandemic started, I talk a lot about that there were going to be three waves to the pandemic crisis. The first was going to be the obvious one, the death and the suffering due to the virus directly, its effect on our respiratory system and other systems. And then not long after that was the economic crisis that we're still experiencing right now. But the cognitive and mental health implications of it, I thought was the third and will be the longest lasting wave caused by a global pandemic of the magnitude that we're still experiencing. Why are we you know, not addressing it it's you know such a deeply rooted problem. There are a lot of large institutions that are relatively static, the healthcare institution in general, uh, the regulatory institutions, like I know the US better than globally, but I interact with the FDA for years to try to get this new treatment approved and really understood from a first person perspective how hard it is to change the status quo with these giant 
regulatory bodies and institutions. Then there's the insurance world, which is also rather entrenched and doesn't really want to change what they reimburse. So you have a lot of big incumbents that are relatively resistant to change and innovation. And so that's one problem. And one thing that I spent an exorbitant amount of time dealing with is trying to convince these groups that it's time for change and they have to be faster and more flexible. And then the other is that the brain is really complicated. I mean, it seems almost like silly to say because we all know that, but it is. And it's not going to be fixed with some magic pill. I just don't believe that that's the case. We've been trying to do that for 70 years to say, here's a pill, depression gone, no side effects, no depression, schizophrenia gone, Alzheimer's gone. We have not succeeded, not even close to succeeded. And we have had the entire world focused on trying to do this for, you know, 70 years. And so it's hard to improve the brain and it's going to take a multi- modal approach. I believe that. I think that drugs and molecules will have some benefit. Um, we've also restricted the molecules that we looked at, like, the, for example, psychedelics have been illegal and not even able to be researched for the last 40 years. But we know that they have a profound effect on cognition and could have really remarkable clinical benefits. So we need to expand the tools that we consider when we want to improve the function of something as complex as the human brain and mind. And that includes all the new technologies we have, video games, like we're using virtual reality, much better use can be made of machine learning and artificial intelligence, sensory immersive technologies in general, and then of course, other compounds like psychedelics. And I see a future where all of these tools will work together. I don't believe there will be a holy grail in any of them, work together to help solving this crisis that we're suffering from now. Or we could just learn to unconditionally love each other. That would be a good start. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would help the mental health crisis. I would say that that is part of the cognition crisis itself, right? I always talk about empathy and compassion as being really impaired right now. And that, I think, is directly related to loving each other. And I think it's a really serious challenge that we face is, you know, our ability to value love as something that should be prioritized and taken you know seriously as dollars right as money because if we can't do that then you know we're going to constantly be fumbling and having all of these negative consequences that are occurring right now Adam in the world of academia and science everything has to be proven right so can we prove that love could be one type of magic pill so to say Yeah. And there is data coming out. It's not usually necessarily framed as love, but it falls into a category of research that we'd call empathy and compassion, which is you know very close to love and has a lot of overlaps with, there is a research in love, but it's not as developed. And empathy and compassion research itself is not vast, but it, it is there. And there is a lot of really provocative data emerging. We're beginning work on it ourselves. But you, know, you could see how challenged we are in this regard. If you take a look at the curriculum of children anywhere in the world. You're going to see math and reading, geography, history. Like, Where is the focus on helping them understand empathy and compassion and caring? And if we don't do that, how can we expect to develop a world full of people that care, right? So there's, there's some like really fundamental problems in our medical and education system when it comes to improving empathy and compassion and love in general. And 
Yes, I, I agree with you. I think that we need more research in this regard, but it's part of the same issue. We're not prioritizing it. It's not just that the schools or the medical institutions or businesses not prioritizing it. Science has not also prioritized research in that domain. But that is starting to change now. And just going back to experiential medicine, as you as you call it, this neuroplasticity aspect of it, I think is fascinating that the changes that occur to enhance cognition or refine behaviors or whatever have a great potential to endure as well. So it's not just using it and getting an effect right now, it is staying. Yeah, that is a big part of it. And you know, this idea of experiential medicine, and you know, I've, I've been using this term a lot now to expand beyond digital medicine. The digital is the delivery of the experience, but the medicine itself is the experience. And experiential medicine has been around thousands of years, uh, right? So like meditation and mindfulness practices in multiple places around the world, I would say is an example of experiential medicine. They were not just there for enlightenment, but they were there to actually reduce human suffering. And the ancient texts are really clear about that. Experiential medicine delivered through digital technologies is a really interesting opportunity, which is like the complete focus of my life. And the fact that it can induce change is not surprising because neuroplasticity is one of the fundamental tenets of modern day neuroscience. But what we're seeing, as you described, is that these effects are both meaningful and also sustainable. So for example, let's go to ADHD, attention deficit disorder. You take a pill like Adderall, a stimulant you're a 12 year old, you have some benefits. Maybe you're less impulsive. You sit a little more quietly in class. Your teacher's happy. You stop taking it the next day back to where you were before. These effects are, are not changing the brain in any way that is sustainable. If you engage in an experience as medicine and harness your brain's plasticity to induce changes in neurophysiology and network function, these changes will last. How long they last is still a really important research question. And even more important than that is what do you do to help maintain it? And I would say that you don't need to maintain it by chronically treating. That's another big shift in the model here is that these type of treatments that we're developing and now advancing commercially are not meant to be chronic in the same way that we've often thought about medicine for the mind, where you know your doctor says, oh, you have depression, we're going to give you this pill daily, and we don't know how long you're going to take it, maybe the rest of your life, right? That is not really a great solution. We want things that are more time-limited that then we can boost with acute treatments over time as opposed to just chronically being dependent upon them. But you're right, that is a critical part of this is the sustainability of the effects, which is the very basis of neuroplasticity. What advice do you have for investors and, you know, the world of finance? How can they contribute and be also part of the win-win here? Yeah, I think there's a, an incredible opportunity. Um, I'm here in San Francisco. We have the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference going on starting next week, which I'll be really busy at. And the reason I'll be busy is because there's an increasing recognition from investors across various sectors that there is an opportunity here for businesses that are thinking out of the box, that are exploring all of the areas that we describe to help address this cognition crisis globally. So there's an incredible need and there's an incredible opportunity. Those are two things that investors are excited about. Is there risk? Yeah, you know, there's risk in anything. And I think that this is still an early field, but we're now showing and releasing evidence that we can make a difference and that the market is accepting of these new type of treatments. And, you know, the future will obviously tell us more, but I think there is a big opportunity for investors, especially those that 
really want to have impact and that are willing to take a little bit more of a risk to look at these new treatments and the companies that are trying to pioneer them. You listed your company and you have developed this amazing digital medicine. What do you see the, the growth prospects of that? Is that something that you think will initially purely be US-based and used, or, or can this be sort of a global medicine? Global is the plan, and it always has been the plan. There's a lot of really special things about a medicine for the brain that's digitally delivered. One is that it has great accessibility, and also it has a lot less stigma than drugs do, certainly like in Asia, for example, where people just do not want to give their kids drugs for any condition. There's a strong resistance to it, even for depression and ADHD. Digital technologies have the accessibility. They can be rapidly deployed by all of the technology systems from the cloud to smartphones and Wi-Fi. Like The system is there already to deploy these treatments globally. So I certainly think it's a global opportunity. My company, Achille, we already have a really exciting relationship in Japan with a very old drug company called Shinogi, who's running a phase three trial with our game right now on ADHD in Japan. We have conversations with countries all over the world about this type of treatment and how it will be interesting for their market. So that's one type of expansion. The other type of expansion is beyond ADHD. There is nothing specific about our treatment for ADHD. It really improves attention. We have dozens of papers across multiple different clinical indications, for example, depression, lupus, multiple sclerosis, many more coming out now showing that it improves attention regardless of what is leading to the impairment of attention. So a big expansion for our company is to move across multiple clinical indications. We actually think of this as what we describe as a transdiagnostic intervention. In other words, it's attention that we're trying to improve regardless of the cause of it. So if we can get the type of regulatory support for that type of treatment, that would be a massive expansion. And then, of course, the global expansion, which has been part of our plan from the very beginning. Very exciting. But what is like the number of people, percentage of a population on average, who has some kind of attention disorder issue? It's not necessarily so easy to quantify because a lot of these attention issues are part of, like, for example, attention issues are part of the diagnostic criteria of depression. But not every person with depression has it to the same degree. But if you look at the diagnostic criteria, it includes fogginess, lack of concentration. As a matter of fact, when you um, are often effectively treated with like SSRIs for depression, that resolves a lot of your sadness and hopelessness, like some of the classic symptoms of depression. You're often left with attention problems that impair you at work. So in some ways, you know, hundreds of millions of people are suffering impairments of attention. Very often people focus on ADHD. Dementia has attention problems associated with it. I would say every clinical condition that affects cognition has attention problems associated with it. It's just a network property of our brain. You know, in that case, there could be, you know, half a billion people around the world that have impairments in cognition and attention as well. The other thing I wanted to say, which, you know, talking about expansion is that, and, and I'm not just speaking about the company I started, Achille, but this entire field is that I described to you one treatment, one video game that is targeted at attention abilities. And, you know, everyone will appreciate we're a company, we need to have an effective product. But that's just the beginning. You can have multiple different types of games that act on different aspects of cognition, from memory to perception to emotional regulation, even empathy and compassion, which is, is something that we're targeting at our research center at UCSF now. So this is not a product. This is like 
the pharma industry. This is a very vast, multiple verticals across different types of engagement and different types of conditions. So that's the other type of expansion that happens. This is just a single product, but no field will be maintained on a single product. There's dozens of products, just like, you know, imagine back in the day, the pharmaceutical industry having one drug. This is just one of our drugs, one game in our toolkit. So that will also allow us to focus on much broader problems. So you also have a wonderful daughter, um, you're a father. What would your advice be to young parents now uh, in order to avoid some of these uh, disorders and um, attention deficits? It's a great question. This has all become a lot more real to me, uh, not just as a scientist, but now as a dad of a two-year-old daughter. And you know, I see the challenges that every parent faced that I've written about. Now I see it firsthand. You know, if they have any exposure to videos, <laughs> it's instantly like on the top of the list of what they want at any time. And I get why parents resort to a screen, an iPad, um, very clearly. Just 10 minutes in a restaurant can allow you to understand why. But there is a price because it is a high level of stimulation and it will become quickly sought after as a reward system. And so I think that maybe it's it's hand wavy and not precise, but you know it's the same advice for everything. Moderation is key and learning to create boundaries and control is what I engage in all the time. And it's hard to do, but if you lose control, and it's not just with your children, but even yourself and how you use technology, if you don't place boundaries around your technology, if you just stay lost in your social media and your email, you're going to miss out on a lot of really amazing things in the world, interacting with other people, being out in nature, physically engaging with our environment. So we need boundaries personally as adults we do and helping pass that on to our children and create the structure for them to have boundaries around the use of technology is the way. And how to do that is the really challenging part. But I, I don't think Denying them completely forever makes sense to me personally, even as a parent. Like it's there, they're going to get exposed to it. It's more teaching them how to use it as a tool that's time limited and has a purpose. It's good to get that reinforced. One thing that I've become very sensitive to is setting an example. You know, so now when my daughter is on my lap, I try not to have my phone in the other hand. Like sometimes I, I feel like I need to because it's the middle of the day, it's still COVID, I'm home and I need to like check an email, but she sees that, right? She knows where my attention is and it's modeling a behavior that I don't want to support. And so I'm very, very careful about how I engage with my technology around her. And I think that modeling those behaviors is really critical. So if we move into a bit of a helicopter mode here, and I'll ask the question, you know, what does the world need most right now? Maybe the answer is love. I feel like that, given our conversation, that that, that would be a good answer. I think maybe, in, you know, we, we've been engaging for so many years, I, I have used that answer before. But compassion and empathy in particular is a really great foundation. Because with that, everything else becomes more possible. I feel like when we don't really have empathic concern for others, whether we call it love or empathy or caring, we don't make the type of decisions that the world needs most right now. What kind of advice would you give to young people now who are making choices to design their life work? I think that there is an incredible opportunity for young people to be able to take what they love and what they're good at and apply it to do something really important. 
And it was always the case, but I think that opportunity is even greater now. I interact with young people daily that want to work in our research center at UCSF. I answered three emails this morning from young people, some of them in high school, some of them in college, that are looking to a future where they take their skills and their passions and they make a difference. That's what they want to do. That's what they basically say straight out. And they're intrigued by the work that we do because they might not be interested in becoming a doctor or a scientist, but they're really good at programming or they're really good at art or they're really good at music. And what we do uses all of those tools. So that's the really fun thing that happened to me unintentionally in my life is that the work that we do has become an outlet for young people with a very broad array of skills. And so, you know, we have people that work in our research center, like, as I described, that are artists and, and musically inclined and others that love programming and some that, you know, really want to interact with patients and want to collect data. Others that love signal processing and hardware, machine learning and AI is another area that we get a lot of interest in. We have the opportunity for all of those young people to have the potential to contribute. And that's not just true of the work that we're doing. So when I speak at you know a graduation and ask this question about advice for the next generation, I always try to encourage young people to not just think intellectually about their future like make a spreadsheet and say, these are the areas of need. These are the areas of my skills. This is what I want to do for the rest of their lives. But also to think about how much fun that is for them and how much enjoyment and pleasure it gives them. Because if you don't align those three things, I always say your skills, something that's important and something that actually gives you pleasure and enjoyment, I think that it's not going to be sustainable. And there's plenty of friends and colleagues I have that are incredible at their jobs that have completely left it because they don't feel satisfied in life and they're 45 years old. So I think it's really important to be introspective as a young person and don't just focus on what you think is important and where there's need and what you're good at, but really think, is this something that I like? Am I excited to do this? When I get up in the morning, does this make me want to jump out of bed? Because it's really important because you have a long life ahead of you and you want to be doing something that you enjoy. And you, Adam, you have a lot of passions that you managed over your lifetime to kind of combine and integrate and everything from love of nature and photography and the research that you do and everything. It's, it's amazing. I'm just curious, like, where did all these things come from somehow? How are they interconnected? Well, I'd say the high level is that I sort of practice what I preach and what I just described. I'm very sensitive internally to things that generate a lot of excitement and passion in me. And I don't suppress that. I follow that, whether it's being in nature and photography. And that has been something that I've been doing for my 30 years is, is following those passions. I also try to pull things together and not have like many disparate threads going on. So my nature photography and my neuroscience research to me are really essentially the same thing. They're both exploring organization and beauty in nature, nature maybe between your ears in, in your skull or nature out in a forest, they feel very similar to me. And so I've tried to weave together passions that support each other and act synergistically even and help each other. Now, for example, my passion for being in nature has led to research studies where we're using 
digitally presented nature through sensory immersive technologies like VR to see if we can improve cognition. So again, these things that are passionate to me weave in and out throughout my life. So that's sort of how I've managed to do so many things is that it really feels like I'm actually doing one thing that has lots of different branches. So what would you wish to have as a main takeaway to be, I mean, for the people listening to this episode? Yeah, well, I know there's a lot of people in the finance and investment world. For that group of people, I'd say be brave. You know, there is a lot of exciting new technologies and the companies that are creating them are struggling now more than ever, given the market conditions. And there is a lot of need that these companies can address. And I think being brave right now is what the world needs from that perspective. And, you know, I'd give the same advice to anyone listening to young people that are looking at their career decisions. Like I try to practice fearlessness as part of my life. And I think that if you live in fear and restrict what you engage in because it's unfamiliar, you'll limit your potential. So I would say be fearless. Great advice. Rainier? What I would add is maybe the next time you ask someone, how are you doing? And the, the answer is, I'm fine. You know, that's most, that's <laughs> most likely not true. I do <laughs> that's most likely not true. <laughs> I think we need more compassion and really seeing each other and just recognizing that there's a lot of people and us struggling with mental health and just uncertainties in the current environment. Undoubtedly, I'd say that no one is immune from this. And I, I really do think the last almost three years now of the pandemic has worsened this. I mean, who cannot feel the burden of the increased isolation that we have? Even now, we just returned to work after New Year's. And you know, while the holidays are often seen as a happy time, they're not happy times for everyone. And here we're back. You could see out my window, it's stormy, rainy. We're still largely remote. So it's not even like you get to see your friends after the holidays, how it used to be. And you know, I just sent out an email to our team saying that if anyone's struggling right now, reach out to me because you're right. There's a lot of struggle going on and it's important to recognize that and always let people know that you're there for them and that you care about. Beautiful. Thanks, Adam. And thank you, Rainier, for a wonderful conversation uh, full of value and insights. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. So, Adam, should we say live fearlessly, right? Live fearlessly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and with compassion and love. Exactly. And with Always with compassion and love. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. This is Summa and Friends, the show that inspires and guides you on how we together can create a wiser future. Listen to unique leaders and experts exploring the challenges we are facing and revealing their stories about the solutions and how to get there. Episodes are released bi-weekly on your favorite podcast platform. And the week after, we release an in-depth blog article to help you capture the core ideas from the dialogues and how you can help move things forward. Summa and Friends is a podcast for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on summaequity.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the show. We hope it has inspired you to reflect on what you can do to contribute. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. I'm Vesna Luca, and you've been listening to Summa and Friends. And until next time...
Live with purpose and be the change you want to see.